Another episode of Tales from the Forlorn Dopes. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Cyber Smiley, and I am the host, or one of the co-hosts, of our wonderful little experiments. Our, my other co-host is... I am Wisdom, otherwise known as Derek Bernier. Uh, greetings, programs. It is so good to have you all today. Uh, with us, we have a special guest, Derek Clintonar. And, uh, yeah, we're excited about this one, folks. Um, Derek, please, please say hello. Greetings to everyone out there in Cyberland. All right. I'm Derek Quintanar, former editor-in-chief of the Cyberpunk 2020 line. One of the masters. So, uh, so Derek. If, if it had Cyberpunk 2020 on the, on the book. He had something to do with it. This is the man. This is the guy behind behind the throne, as it were. Yeah. So we start off with all our guests. Um, we have this thing called Full Auto Questionnaire. Basically, it's short, quick questions with short, quick answers. Um, and, you know, if, if you don't have an answer for the question, then, you know, by all means, please pass. So. I'm going to get into it. Um, first question is 2020, 2045, or 2077? 2020. What's uh, yeah, that fa- probably a good <laughs> favorite cyberpunk role? Solo. Favorite piece of cyber uh, cyberware? Uh, split between two. Pass. <laughs> Favorite cyberpunk weapon? Uh, the four barrel, 10 millimeter plastic sleeve guns. Nice. Here we have of them. I think this one might be, uh, uh, well, the next two questions I know are going to be difficult. Favorite cyberpunk red or 2020 book? Favorite 2020 book would be the Chromebook series. Excellent. Uh, Least least favorite Cyberpunk 2020 book? The Fixers. But not for the reason you think. I'll tell you about that later in the broadcast. Interesting. All right. Um, So so we've discussed that you've tickered around with the the computer game. So uh, Pan Am, Judy, or Rogue? Judy. Uh, you've seen some of the anime, so Lucy, Rebecca, or Kiwi? Uh, Rebecca. Uh, next is Carrie, River, or Goro? Carrie. Uh, David, Maine, or Pilar? 
Maine. Favorite night yeah, city. <laughs> Favorite night city gang. Don't have one. Hate them all. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite mega corporation. Militech. Uh, favorite cyberpunk movie. Johnny Mnemonic. Favorite cyberpunk okay. fictional character. Yeah, everyone gets held up on this one. Pass. <laughs> uh, Gibson, Dix, or Stevenson? Gibson. Favorite cyberpunk novel? Hardwire. Is Shadowrun yeah, cyberpunk? It's halfway there. <laughs> Good enough answer. So, so those are the full auto questions. Uh, you didn't get any right, and you didn't get any wrong. So, <laughs> it is what it is. There are no wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh. So, uh, let's talk about. Basically, you were editor in chief of everything. <laughs> um, the only things I think I can call you out on is uh, Solo Fortune. You were had writer credits. Chrome One, yeah. you had contributor credits. Edge Runner, you were labeled as a rewrites. Um, Maximum Metal, you were a writer. Other than that, every single other 2020 book is is you are the editor in chief. So, the guy pulling it all together. And even those books where I am in as writer, I'm actually still editor in chief behind it because. A lot of those had multiple writers. And again, as I said before in our pre-show talk, I'm the one who had to chase the cats around the room. Exactly. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is the problem of depending. Well, it's the joy and the problem of depending upon a large freelancer pool instead of being mainly in-house writers. Right. Yeah, and, and I think... This was the before the days of really the internet, right? I mean, yeah, e emails were coming slowly coming in at that time, so I'm sure it was even more difficult compared to nowadays uh, trying to herd yeah, the cats. We had you could pass you could pass very basic files back and forth, you know, ID. So we'd use it to you know to pass ideas back and forth. But if they were an artist or a writer and we needed the actual the actual text or the actual picture, then yeah, it was a, it was a lot of uh, FedEx. We all we ran <laughs> we ran up big FedEx bills in those days. Wow. So, how did you first hook up with uh, Mike and Lisa? That actually started uh, about two years before Cyberpunk. I was in. A D and D game with Mike Jones, whose name shows up in uh, uh, Teenagers from Outer Space and in Mechton in a couple of places. And Mike said, "There's this guy. He's invented a robot game." 
And at the same time, I had already been a multi-year fan of anime, um, had been connected to the cartoon fantasy organization of the U.S., um, had, you know, was getting into Gundam, all that kind of stuff, uh, pirated tapes brought over from Japan, all that kind of thing. And I said, oh, robot game, huh? Let's go take a look. And, uh, so yeah, I met Mike and saw the original Mechcon board game. Said, woohoo, move robots around the board. Kill shit. Let's go. Um, then, as I said before, I am a systems guy, not an idea guy. So I, after playing the game a whole bunch with Mike, I said, well, Mike, why don't we, why doesn't it have this? Why doesn't it have that? And uh, he had good answers for most of it. I mean, the original Mekton is pretty much based on any of the super robot stuff. Like uh, like Dai King and Super Robot Grandizer and Mazinger Z and all that. So the more subtlety, more subtle bits of things like uh, uh, Dugram and Votoms and Gundam were were beyond beyond the idea. So there. But I helped introduce. Basically, I said, "There's all this other stuff. There's all this much more sophistication to the robots." Um, and so when Mike decided to do the Transformer um, supplement for Mekton, Road Striker, yep. which was based on a which was based on a Japanese show that I showed him um, called Super Lightspeed Galvian, which had transforming cars battling it out. And uh, when Ooh, we started, I haven't heard that name in a long time. He said, "Help me write it." So. I helped him write it. And then he, he said, well, that was pretty good. Why don't you do some other stuff for us? And that's how it went. Nice. So what I'm getting from that is that the original draft of Mekton was an excuse to use Shogun Warriors on the miniatures table. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, I it was, it was a spinoff of the Shogun Warriors cartoon, sort of, in Mike's mind. That was the that was the whole idea. That was the whole aesthetic at that time. Um, cool. Yeah, I yeah. I was not part of the original hey. Cyberpunk twenty thirteen development. Um, I was doing a few things for him for Mech Talk. Um, I wasn't full timing for him yet, mm -hmm. and uh, he was working on on 2013 pretty much by himself with some help from Will Moss and a couple other and Dave Ackerman. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really got into it. I did some like reading over and some editing for him afterwards, but I didn't. I really got into it when he needed support things, and that's how it kind of went for the rest of my career. There is. Mike would do. Mike would have the big ideas. Mike would do the big steps, and then I would lay all the little brick and tile work that fills in between the big steps. Right. Um, 
he did he he came up with the idea for most of the rule books um you know but i did i did all the chrome books i did uh the the heavy metal book all that kind of stuff because i felt that was things that needed to be filled in and uh if we hadn't if we hadn't gone on economic hiatus in 98 um that i feel that would have been the thrust of the next couple years of our releases um stuff like you guys are doing um like i said before the africa source book the medical books stuff like that that's stuff we would have eventually gotten around to do so i i find it highly satisfying and gratifying that somebody's doing it <laughs> that these things are these wow plug you heard it first yeah, wisdom last <laughs> thank you that i got a grin on my face right now that is threatening to break my head no problem i mean the last thing we were going to work on when we closed for the hiatus was i was soliciting ideas for a project called ocean zone which was going to be all mm. it was going to be you know submarines and sea warfare and and ocean going cyberware and it was essentially going to be deep space but for water okay and is that yeah. where you got the the firestorm um stormfront yeah did uh, that stuff get folded in or you know the firestorm stuff came out of the fact that mike wanted to transition the the game in general to the next level so that was why the corporate war came the fourth corporate war came along and uh and so things that are connected directly to the fourth corporate war are from mike they came out of his they came out of his idea for how cyberpunk was going to transition to the next uh the next version okay i mean probably you know i have no idea i, I can't read his mind but we probably would have done something like 2045 or red as the next version and that would have been out probably sometime in the early 2000s if we hadn't uh, if we hadn't closed down right well um so so one of my other question i kind of answered it was um as being an ed editor you know a big part of your job was keeping the lore straight and consistent through the entire line um, were any of the books more difficult in this regard, or, or did, was it pretty easy to kind of wrangle the cat, kittens, as it were? Keeping keeping the lore straight was, you know, in terms of like timelines and stuff, was pretty easy. Um, you know, Mike had an idea of usually of where he wanted the big books to go. And so, you know, we could, I could, we could always come to him and say, this is going to happen. He'd say, no, not yet, or no, not at all, or yes, go ahead. Um, what I found more difficult, and like I said, this was something that I felt we were, that we probably would have addressed in the, in the future, that the, the lost alternate future of a continuous Artelsorian, um, was... 
making things into a coherent whole, you know, like you guys with, you know, the guys that are doing the medical book, it's like we scattered our medical tech over like six different books and, and it's not really consistent in its, in its pricing or its effects. And that would have been something we would have tried to, to uh, streamline it back down to. Um, it's why I wanted the heavy metal book because, you know, there were people that wanted to do big vehicles. There were people that wanted to do powered armor. And I said, these all interact, big vehicles, big guns, powered armor, all interact, put them all in the same book. Yeah. That way they interact properly done. Plus when you did so, you kind of standardized the format. Or how vehicles are presented in Cyberpunk before, it, um, but after after Maximum Metal came out, it uh it all got unif it all got standardized, which yeah. made things much easier. Plus, you know, having Appleseed type powered armor in the game just. Like I ran military campaigns, so it was like right up my alley. Plus, it was, it was Bubblegum Crisis and Appleseed, and my love for those that like when I found Cyberpunk, I was like, oh, I can play this. I can I can do this. Yeah. So it sounds like you were you were heading towards uh, possibly consolidating like the medical stuff or the tech stuff. So there wasn't any like solid plans. Um, of pushing out a, a role book for that role? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. I mean, it might have been that when we tried to consolidate the medical stuff, Mike might have gone ahead and said, well, let's do a medical role. You know, let's do a medical character role, and then we can put all the medical equipment and all the medical skills and their effects all together in the same book. Again, you know, more of that streamlining, focusing kind of thing. Okay. Um, I mean, like I said, laying, I lay a lot of the little bricks in between the big steps. That's what, uh, if you look at it, that's what a lot of uh, listen up, you primitive screw heads is. Um, that's me putting the dropping in the last little bits of tile in the combat system because um, I went to Craig Sheely, who was my freelancer uh, go-to guy for system stuff, particularly military systems, um, police systems, that kind of stuff. And I said, I told him, I said, Craig, we don't have a coherent explosive system. You can plant a bomb, you can throw a grenade, you can shoot a rocket at, at somebody. They don't have matching effects i need a matching effects system and he invented one for me and at the same time i i also said uh nomads like to use crossbows and bows we don't have a we don't have a coherent archery system give me a scientific archery system <coughs> and he gave me oh, so he, it was he, all, he's the one who created the bows in, in that system because in those important gaps yeah yeah, yeah bows are, are deadly in the game um oh yeah geez. they're better than guns but as far as like effectiveness i don't i don't want to get shot with an arrow in that no, game definitely not 
so yeah, I, I had all I had always envisioned that you know a medical a med tech slash techie source book was in the works somewhere because it's the only that's the only roles that that never got their own splat books. Uh, we talked some about a tech book about a, a, a techie book. Um, it never made it to the schedule though before the hiatus. Um, I would have pushed for some sort of construction system. Um, I don't know if you remember, yeah. but uh, God, what publisher was that? Iron Crown. Iron Crown had a cyberpunk game. Yep. Cyberspace. That was when yep. everybody had a cyberpunk Cyber game. Cyberspace was awesome. But Iron Crown had a cyberpunk game, and one of the, the only thing I, you know, I don't like the Iron Crown system, and I don't like most of what they do with their games, but one of the things I liked out of that cyberpunk game is it had an integrated uh, cyberware construction system. So you could, yeah, you could build all your cyberware or you could break it down and explain it. And it was all consistent, which is, again, that was another thing we probably would have had to address uh, in the next one or two years down the road there. Cool. So it sounds like you consistency is always important. I yeah. Mean, it just helps with every <clears throat> other aspect. Well, there's a reason that I think the most important uh, online freeware book is the is that grand encyclopedia that the guy from Finland did that has all um, all the cyberpunk stuff in a uh the reference book see if i can find that guy andrew james's uh cyberpunk ref book yeah or the uh or the super dan project or morning man no, I think it was the uh, the still it's the CP uh, book. CP yeah. book, Andrew James's book. Yeah, yeah. Andrew James put together just a monumental piece of work, and uh, it's it's still a, the golden reference for yeah. whatever you're looking for. So Derek, were you part of um, Mike's cyberpunk campaigns, and or did you run games or play yep. in them? I ran cyberpunk at the uh, cons for the company. Um, I never ran it myself um, as a as a fan. Um, uh, I actually played more Mechton in those days. Uh, my secret shame is that the cyberpunk, yeah, the cyberpunk chief played more mech time. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, see, in those in those days, I tended to treat cyberpunk much more as work. This was my this was my work problem to solve. Um, you know, not my not my fun, as opposed to. Uh, 
uh, Mechton or Teenagers from Outer Space, which I also played in several campaigns of, because I was an anime fan, that was my fun. Cyberpunk was my fun. That makes sense. So you didn't um, help craft any of the uh, kind of the iconic characters that were in any of the lore? No. Uh No, that was... uh, that was mostly uh, mostly Mike, some Dave Ackerman, some uh, um, Chris. Those people. Okay. So it's something like you, or I should say, did you prefer working on rule books or lore books or the gear books? It sounds like you, you like the Chromebooks more. Yeah, I'm a... I'm a gear man and a rules man. Um, you know, I don't, I don't hate the lore or anything. I just, uh, you know, I, I, I consider the lore to be something that, the lore was something for Mike to take care of. Basically, I would take care of the rules. I would take care of the gear. Mike would take care of the lore, and it should all work. Um. Oh, here we go. I've got something for you. Um, earlier, we were talking about pre-show. There, you were again talking about this whole thing of uh, the big uh, freelancer pool and yep. sweeping people up in the cyberpunk. So I can tell you, um, I can't use his name because of what he does, but I can tell you who the the most unusual and most incredible freelancer of the whole bunch is he worked on uh he worked on the the u.s book for us and he worked on the chrome books and he worked on the um uh on screw heads for us some so i got this call one day from a guy that wanted to talk cyberpunk talk cyberpunk with him and whatnot and uh, the phone connection was poor and I said, where are you? I said, why are you calling? You know, where are you calling from? Your phone connection is terrible. It's crackly. And he started laughing. He said, oh, it's a radio phone. I'm in Honduras. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Lord. What are you doing in Honduras? I'm, or what are you doing calling us from Honduras? He goes, oh, I'm assigned down here. Turns out he was a Spec Ops guy for one of the psychological operative radio intercept units. Um, and he was between, wow. he was between assignments and he was down, but he was a cyberpunk player and he did, and he wanted to call and talk shop. <laughs> and uh, he knew that the U S book was coming up and he said, you know, Who's doing your Who's doing your military? And I said, "Well, you're doing our military." <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Wow. Fact, so that like he, he visited. Yeah, us, that's. Uh... He visited us for one, uh, for one Gen Con. He took leave and and came to the Gen Con to meet us in person, but that was a kick. Um, and uh, he's responsible for a lot of the what the U.S. military looks like in the in the U.S. book. Okay. Well, that's awesome. 
I mean, because it, it comes across as somebody with experience writing it. I mean, there's there's bits and pieces in there that, you know, you wouldn't think of unless you were actively exposed to that lifestyle. Exactly. I, I think I know who you're talking about, but I'll not mention yeah, his I'm name. Yeah, I'm pretty positive I know who we're talking about. I'm not sure why we're keeping it a secret, but we'll keep it a secret. Cool. Do you well, have... I'm keeping it more <laughs> Yeah, true. Um, do you have any other fun stories from back in the day? Um, Joe, why I why I hate the fixer book? Oh yes, why yeah. I um, I don't hate the role. I don't hate the rules. Can you guess what part I hate? The layout, the art. Oh, <laughs> the art. Wrong. Yeah, I can see that. You know, I I think it's far it's far enough past that uh, I can't be uh, I can't be pinned for for libel or slander, which I can't be anyway because this was the truth. Um, basically, we got screwed by the artist on that book. Oh. Oh, dish it out. He did a. When we hooked him, he actually did does some good art, but he ran off to a uh, he ran off to a comic book assignment. Got to remember, this was the this was the nineties, black and white comic explosion. A lot of independent yep. companies. Yeah, new titles yeah. and new companies popping up in the wave of. Yeah, wave well, of. That's what he wanted to do uh, all, after image. You know, that was what he wanted to do all along. So he did not, he gave us a rush job and then bailed. Got it. And because we were on a tight schedule, there was, I mean, I wanted to get somebody else, but there was just no, there was no time. Um, and Mike said we would, get new art for it if we ever did a second printing but it uh, it, it sold only okay enough and I, I personally think that was partially because of the art because I mean the systems are good it's all good stuff for a, for a fixer but uh, so it was just a, a bias from dealing with a, a bad artist and that yeah I can see that I you know, because for me, um, I always found like uh, the art and uh, protect and serve was probably, I think, the the worst art. I, I, there are good pieces on it, but there's also some pieces that were just a little yeah, inconsistent. Yeah, with the there, rest of the there was an inconsistent quality of it. Yeah, it's like that with uh, it's like that with Wild Tide. I'm assuming. We're not talking about Mike Lowry. No. Because his art in Wild, in Wild Side is, is tip top. But then you, a couple of pages later, you're looking at something and just like, how does that fit? Exactly. So we're not going not gonna to push you for names. But yeah, that's... I had no idea. Um, I know that the guy who did the cyberpunk 2020 card game turned out to be 
kind of a flaky dude who didn't like to pay artists and all that. Which is a pity because I, uh, I am, I am continually swept away by all of the positive reviews and whatnot for that game. Um, I believe it's yeah, still, and the art. I believe it still remains Wizard Magazine's like highest rated CCG ever. Are you talking about? I, know, I mean, it, it, the, which, the, which card game? Because because you, you had the Netrunner right CCG, and you had the Cyberpunk twenty twenty, and I know yeah, that well, the Netrunner was they you know was considered one of the top five. I didn't think that the the kind of uh, hijacked uh, Cyberpunk 2020 one was was really even official, right? I'm not too sure if that one was either. Um, but because uh, I I didn't it's, have any, I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, it's a shame because the art for that card game was just phenomenal, and like that's just a whole bit of tragedy in and of itself yeah i know one of the more prolific artists for the for the 2020 card game uh like committed suicide and i don't know how much of or if if any of that debacle had anything to do with that but um i do know that i'm a big fan of that guy's work yeah that's right. pretty cursed um uh onto a happier note uh it seemed like there was a big push by all the game companies back then to get out as much product as possible uh but it, it felt like uh artal saurian you know you guys published just better quality books than most of the other people out there um was that like a conscious a effort of editing or was it just the quality of work from the writers a little both I mean, it was a shelf war in those days. I mean, now when everybody can, you know, just run their games off at uh, at uh, drive-through RPG and whatnot, people forget that all this stuff had to fight for shelf space in the old days. Um, so that's why that's why you you always you always pumped everything out on a curve. It was like you released the base game and then you released like as much supporting material as you could possibly get in the next couple of months. And then you kind of eased off the throttle and would release things spread out after that. But the idea was you wanted to seize as much visual shelf space as you possibly could. You know, I mean, in the very early days, Mike used to go to the local game stores and whatnot and, uh, you know, ask them if they would do things like, display our stuff cover out instead of spine out because once again i grabbing shelf space it's all part of that shelf war yeah it always surprised me that i i never saw like posters or anything like that um like promoting the 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 game the only thing i ever saw outside of the materials themselves were ads in like early uh Animag and whatnot. 
Yeah, yeah, we ran ads in some of the actual gaming magazines as well. Um, and we did t-shirts and whatnot, but I mean, those most of that stuff was con giveaways. Um, I've got we, a croissant pin, the little enamel jobby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, here's a, here's a question to you guys. I assume you both own copies of the boxed U.S. set, right? Oh, yeah, three of them. Did either one of you get get a miniature in your box? I did not. I did not. Just for the fun of it, we we had just gotten in. We had just gotten in the uh, some of the early cyberpunk miniatures, which I think were from, I think they were either from Ralph Arthur or Martian Metals in those days. And I and Chris Hawkabout and Lisa and uh mike mcdonald as we packed those boxes uh we would toss an occasional miniature a cyberpunk miniature in at random into the Ooh. box Every box has one but uh but they are out there man i got three of those boxes none of them came with miniature <laughs> now i'm jealous <sighs> Um, yeah, yeah, Derek. Or now, sorry, I Wiz own all those miniatures from the Ralph Arthur line, but I didn't get any in my in my in my box set, which is now I have something else to look for. There you go. <laughs> so, how much we've talked before, rather reluctantly, about the uh, the only two licensed cyberpunk 2020 novels uh the ones written by steven bilius alias i don't know um did you guys have any input on those at all like was there any kind of collaboration other than other than mike setting up the license and maybe feeding them the the lore and whatnot Nobody in house had any feedback. Those were those were strictly done through um, whoever the literary agent was. It's like, man, barely remember those things. Yeah, I mean, I remember being so excited when I saw them in the bookstore, and then getting them home and and reading them and just being all like. For being very impressed by either one of them. Yeah, like what the hell was this? Right. Well, it, I think it I was mean, it's... a stab into the whole novel because if you or novel writing of a game system because back then it was like D and D, BattleTech, uh, Shadowrun, Shadowrun, Vampire. Vampire. All of them were were just producing novels and novels of stuff. So you know. I... A lot of it came from the fact that while we knew while we knew good writers, they were all busy. Um, you know, we uh, anything else I've ever heard in regards to that. Became friends with uh, with both uh, with both Walter John Williams. That's and, true. Uh, and Effinger. Uh, and Effinger. 
but they were both always busy with their own projects. Mike, Mike knew Mike Stackpole, but he was always busy writing a billion words for BattleTech. So you know, <laughs> we could never get a good a, a name writer for uh, for a cyberpunk novel. Is the problem? Got it. Yeah, I mean, those just came across as being written by somebody who'd never actually played the game. So, oh, I'm sure he didn't. I'm pretty sure he did. And it's telling that nothing that appears in those books is ever referenced anywhere else at all. Like they were not canon, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. So was was there any products um, that kind of were left on the cutting room floor at all? Um, like you just... It was a great idea, and then you started flushing out, and it was like, nah, this isn't going to work. Or something that got left behind when, you know, you guys closed doors for a while? Uh, well, we didn't have any, we didn't really have any dead ideas. There was stuff we would put off, like, putting off a tech book because we knew it was going to be, it was going to have to be pretty comprehensive and there were other books that would be easier to churn out. Um, and since Mike already had the, the timeline all pretty much set up in his head, had the major events, had the characters and whatnot, it wasn't like we had to make anything up out of, uh, uh, you know, whole cloth that would have disturbed it because basically anything we might have brought up like that in discussion simply got, you know, tossed in in the very earliest uh, discussed. Now, I think the only thing I could say was kind of a out of left field that we didn't really see coming was Rough Guide to the UK. Because um, hmm. those guys approached us, those guys approached us, I believe, through through Chris Hockabout in the magazine. Um, I think maybe they contacted him and then he contacted us. Um, but they they were all freelancers in England that didn't like didn't like how we had treated England in the original Euro book. And they said, we want to fix this. And we said, well, how do you want to fix this? And they said, we're going to bring back the king. There's going to be a revolution. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's just kind of out of left field, nutty enough. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, what happens when you get a bunch of kids raised on Judge Dredd and let them write a source book? Yeah, kind of, kind of. You know, we only, the only thing we laid down was the idea that, you know, that we want kind of the level of background like we applied to the U.S. set, you know, so that that's what you've got to apply to England. I think they did a pretty good job. I mean, I know one of them, um, Lee Brimcone-Wood, um, 
he went on to write war games. He, he works for like GMT games and stuff these days. Okay. That's interesting. Well, we know that, uh, uh, we know that there were some of the books where the ISBN numbers were skipped. Were, were those, were there plans for those, for books to be released with those numbers or for whatever reason, did they just, did you guys just move on? Mike skipped those so that there would be space that we could use later was the idea. Okay. That makes sense. You know, um, I don't think it was meant, I, you know, I can't, I can't swear to this, but I don't think it was meant to be a strictly chronological progression. I mean, the only book yeah, because I know some of them got released out of order. Uh, yeah, the only book that we left on the that we that we left behind when the hiatus came, like I said, was we were in preliminary talks to do Ocean Zone, and that was it. That was gonna man. Be I would love to see that. That was going to be the next biggie. Um, we were going to get a couple of the English guys to work on it. We were going to get a couple of Chris Hawkabout's crew to work on it. Well, wasn't yeah. uh, Otech one of the fan creations, uh, corporations that was part yeah. of the Stormfront? Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of grew out of that. It kind of grew out of that, and it grew out of um, I think it was Icarus Games. Icarus Games did a set of licensed adventures for us, and I believe one of them was set in an underwater prison or underwater arcology. And between that, oh, and uh, Ianus, Ianus, um, yeah, I, yeah, and no. that was Subattica. Sorry. So between that and. Uh, and the OTEC entry, that was where people got the idea for Ocean Zone. And I thought it was a good thing because, you know, that was the last that was the last environment that we hadn't really gotten into. And given, you know, all the potential that people have been talking about in the real world for a billion years now about the ocean, how there's more there's more land under the water than there is land above the water, you know, there's you can do aquaculture. You can do mining. Um, for those who like, uh, you know, Hunt for Red October and the billion submarine warfare novels that followed it, um, basically, Ocean Zone was gonna was was gonna give everybody a little taste of that. I know, back in the early days, like in the '90s internet days. Uh, there were a couple of super sites out there that sadly are no longer with us, but one of them was run by a, a guy called Morning Man, and he had a whole ocean tech thing that he'd created. Was that? I've never seen that. In oh, it's it, it was good stuff. Uh, I have rules never... for uh, cavitation and like uh, rigid vessels, like rigid inflatable vessels. It was, I, you know, if, if I'd known that existed, and it's weird that 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 was never brought to my attention because usually, usually Chris and 
and like Hawkabout and Rotor and whatnot were all good about bringing that sort of thing to my attention if I hadn't found it myself. Um, yeah, they, it, it was never, pretty in-depth. It used like, the same format as Max Metal. It was, it was good stuff. I thought maybe there was some collaboration there. No, if I'd known he'd done it, I'd have I'd have offered him a spot on the Ocean Zone thing. Not that that went anywhere, but there you go. Man, I would love to see the notes for that. Just, oh, that'd be cool. So, being the editor for all the uh, Cyberpunk twenty twenty books, uh, what was the thing that you loved doing with those, or, or, or doing as a job for for editing them? Well, seeing all of it first is nice. I mean, as editor, you get to see all those, you get to see all those texts first. You get to see all that art first. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to, it's, it's nice to watch an artist uh, turn your ideas into pictures. That's always great, especially with the cyberpunk stuff. It's like, I'd say, you know, do me a, do me this arm or this vehicle or this aircraft or whatever. And it's like, they, you know, some of those guys were fantastic draftsmen. And I mean, I still love most of the art in the, in the Chromebooks. It's just like, so, so well done. So nice. Um, nice. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, I had a mail-in question that came in today that was just perfect timing. Um, Tom Sullivan asked if you can give us any information on Tom Ebert, the cover artist for the Chromebooks. On Ebert? That's, yeah. Or Mike Ebert. Mike Ebert. Um, well, Mike's another one of those people that predates Cyberpunk. I originally met him as part of the whole uh, uh, cartoon fantasy organization, California anime fandom crowd. Um, oh, nice! Yeah, he was a collector of he was a collector of giant robot toys that that I hung out with in Berkeley for a couple of years. Um, then I found out he was an artist. Um, he also did a couple of, he either did a couple of covers or a couple of interior pieces for the anime mag we did. Um, so you can find his stuff there as well. And he also, I think, might have done some art for, uh, for Teenagers from Outer Space. Um, okay. God, I you know I lost I lost touch with him during the interregnum, and I have no idea if he's still in the Berkeley area or not. Uh, ask Chris. Ask. Um, let's see. Ask Benjamin Wright. Okay. Benjamin, no. Um, if not, he'll know somebody who knows. Yeah, Ben that, seems that like seems the direction everybody points to sad like talk to Ben. <laughs> he sounds like he's the fixer of the group. Yeah. yeah. Well, he still keeps in The thing is is he's a linchpin in that he still keeps in contact with other members of the staff and with other fans 
and whatnot. So it's like, you know, he still knows, he knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak. <laughs> nice. That's the perfect yeah. way to put that, really. It's funny. I tend to think of Ebert more as a, uh, as a, teenagers and and mecton and whatnot artist than a cyberpunk artist but yeah he did do the chrome he did do a couple of chromebook covers for us it looked like he did all um, of them he may have yeah, all four of them whether or not the, the, the which is, is it's 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 like he had a pretty diverse art style because each of the covers is is like the style is vastly different from each other. Like Chrome one is, is very obviously Hajime Soriyama inspired. And then, you know, the others like uh, Chrome two is like a, a very realistic looking style. Chrome three is more of like a, like an anime style. Uh, it's, it's pretty nice to see that level of diversity. Yeah. Well, he worked for, when he wasn't working for us, his real job was working for the game department at Lucasfilm. Really? The oh, early, the early Lucasfilm game department. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I uh, that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, the the artists you guys had working for you are were just all fantastic. I mean. Uh, Chris Hawkabout, Mike Jackson, Doug Anderson. Hell, you guys had Lee Bermejo and uh, Paolo Parente before either of them got famous. Oh, I love Paolo. I love Paolo. You ever look? Uh, you ever look at his stuff on the? Uh, you ever look at his stuff on the America book for uh, uh, Castle Falconstein? It's like, oh, dude, his stuff is amazing. So good. It, uh, when I started seeing his name in comic books, uh, same with Lee, uh, I was all like, I know that guy. I, <laughs> he's here. Well, when and like, uh, doing stuff for us, I used to see his name a lot. He used to do art for, uh, what was it? It was for a science fiction mecha game out of Europe called Dust. Yeah, that's that's his big claim to fame. Um, Jesus, the art in that is fantastic. Like, it's it's top notch. Uh, and you guys just acquired talent like that, and I don't know. A lot of your guys went on to like really big stuff. Well, like you said, uh, the way that works is you have to go hunt. You have to strike first. And, you know, in these days of where everything is computerized and people send their portfolios back and forth um, by computer and whatnot, it's, it's probably different. But when I did it, that meant a lot of trips to San Diego Comic-Con in the days before it became a multimedia crowd uh, explosion. You could still move around and breathe. Um, meant trips to uh, Baycon, which was a science fiction convention um, in the South Bay area, the biggest one for Central California, uh, trips to Anime Expo, 
before they moved down to LA and were still operating out of Oakland, San Francisco, and basically haunt the artist alleys, collect the cards, collect samples, talk to people, hunt, hunt, hunt. That was how I found these people most of the time. You know, sometimes they would come to us. Like, I think Paolo, Paolo came to us, I think maybe through our European print licensors. I think they might have recommended him. Not sure, wow. though. Yeah, I love this kind of information. Yeah. Um, he did not find him, and he did not offer himself. Somebody offered him, if I remember right. That's very cool. It was, and it was such a good fit. Like uh, his covers for this for the Firestorm books are just epic. Well, he's a good, as important as a good artist in my eyes, at least in those days, criteria wise, is a fast artist and an artist easy to get along with. It's like if he'll make the changes you want. You know, because occasionally you would run into artists who, you know, especially if they're young and they haven't been in the business very long, they tend to think of their art as art, capital letters. <laughs> <laughs> so when you want the, when you want them to like, no, I want this guy posed like X and he's got Y in his hand, you know, they go, but you're changing it. And that's, that's right, because this is what I want. That's what commercial illustration this is. This is what I'm paying you for. Yeah. Uh, and Paolo was always, always willing to make changes, but he was also good with suggestions, too. So it's like you have a flexible artist, you have an artist with imagination. You know, he's one of our best. Uh, as, as, as good as he is, as good as the rest of them are, I think my favorite cover artist for your line was was Doug Anderson. Like his covers just always blew me away. I just remember Doug as being very workman, very workmanlike. It's like you could you could trust Doug to get it done. Yeah, that. I mean, his cover for Night City. If I could have that as a poster, I would. Like that would hang on my wall in a framed post picture right now. You know, I've, it just it, it captured cyberpunk. One time, I think we were actually going to do that, or we may have done. Oh no, I know what it was. If you had come to our, if you had, if you had come to our booth in like the first couple times we made trips to uh, Gen Con, you would have found that picture blown up to approximately uh, four and a half by six foot tacked on to uh, tacked on to uh, fiberboard and hung on our back curtain as our backdrop at, at our con booth. Nice. Man. Nice city cup. That's... Yeah, you guys should have released It was a con prop for years. That's so, yeah. beautiful. You talking about that city cover and saying how you wanted a poster? I was thinking in my head, I thought we did a poster, and then I remembered, no, it was the it was a con prop. It was our con back. It was our con booth background. That would certainly catch the eye. 
Nice. Um, <clears throat> so with the popularity now, uh, or, or the resurgence of cyberpunk, as it were, to, with Red and uh, CD Projekt Red's uh, Cyberpunk 2077 being released and the anime, um, what are your thoughts on how how the popularity of the, the game and, and the lore and the brand has been in the past recent years? You know, it's nice to see a comeback. Um, I feel kind of weird about Cyberpunk post-2010 because it's now... And I had a discussion about this some years ago with Ross Wynn, with Spike. Um, cyberpunk has passed, cyberpunk as a genre has passed into what they call retro rusty future uh, pretty swiftly. Um, you know, uh, I, I, jibed, I jibed Mike uh, in the spring of 2020 saying, hey, Where's my flying car? <laughs> where's my cyber arm? Yeah, where's my damn flying? Well, cyber arm, you know, there's been some huge breakthroughs in cyber limbs in the last decade. You know, it's the same way, you know, we were always better. Here's the thing. We were always better at predicting the tech than we were predicting the politics. It's like, um, you know, Predicted the cyberware, predicted the cell phone, predicted the the portable uh, laptop and tablet computers, um, predicted the idea of the enhanced virtual reality, um, predicted caseless ammo, though that took a while. Um, <clears throat> it's like the fall of the Berlin Wall? No. The, the huge changes in Russia, GPL. the stagnation of J the stagnation of Japan, so it did not become master of the Pacific Basin. It's like no, and <laughs> yeah, you kind of missed the boat on that one. You know, missed hit all the hit tech, missed all the politics. Well, not all the politics. I mean, there's some things like uh, uh, corporate shenanigans and whatnot here in the United States that I think we were still good. On. It's just, it's not as grossly blatant. Yeah. That's the thing. I it's mean, quite cool. honestly, it's like at this point, cyberpunk almost looks optimistic in comparison to the real world. <laughs> well, you know, it's, all, it's, it's just not as, it's, like I said, it's just not as flashy. There's, there's corporate stuff, but it's not super flashy. There's private military corporations, but they're not, you know, they're oh, not yeah. openly marching armies. Um, you know, there's been no collapse of a major polity since the, since the collapse of the, the, um, Soviet Union, basically, Soviet. No the United States, Central America stabilized, you know, it's just like, um, yeah, people, what was it, uh, My grandfather used to say, always invest in land because people are no damn good. <laughs> but cyber with the cyberpunk future, it's kind of the other way around. It's like, 
the tech is ter the the tech and where it's going and and what it implies is terrible. But the people are better than we had any right to believe they'd be. People turned out to be yeah. better expected. Yeah. Um. So. You mentioned that, um, I think pre-show, that you kind of dabbled a little into the 2077 game and, and have seen some of the anime. you have any thoughts on, on those products? And um, They're both nice. They're both the kind of stuff that we... Uh, they were the stuff we had hoped for. Um, stuff we always wanted. You know, for that I am I I am super happy for Mike and that this has all been realized. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, I think CD uh, Project Red has much to answer for. Um, the game would have the game would have been received so much better without the problems that red brought to the table yes it, uh, it was a shaky launch and uh yeah it, it took a while for it to get the more I, the more i read about it the more i realized that it was not completely you know i used to blame it completely on on uh cd red but it's actually shared equally with the uh the q a firms that red subcontracted to um from what i've i've read recently is those q a firms lied to cd red about how buggy the game was and then cd red turned around and said this thing is swell let's put it out well i, I um, think it was a, a perfect storm of of a the qa team you also had i'm sure the marketing team trying to push it and and stress that right yeah. to, to get the money and then you had the developers who knew the truth and like no this is not ready don't go and of course you know well qa is telling us mm -hmm. it's good you're you know who are you you're just developers so we're gonna go with the qa guys and and, and get this pushed out so we can start making money and and it didn't know. help that like halfway through development they hired they hired keanu uh, Reeves, uh, and then suddenly the whole game focus kind of kind of shifted, and they had to like refocus everything to accommodate that because you know we're paying this guy all this yeah. money, and let's get every almost, drop out of him. We almost too much pre-start hype. You know, I think the, the game had yeah. almost too much pre-start hype, which means trying to meet expectations was a uh, uh, lost cause to a certain extent, you know, and honest to God, I think Mike ought to get down on one knee and publicly thank the entire modding community because they have made that game everything it should have been. Yep. I mean, I cannot praise the mod, you know, I will go on the public record and, and say that I cannot praise the modding community enough what they have done for that game. I play on PS5. I don't, I don't <laughs> He I don't doesn't get mods. It's sad. I've never wanted to play a modded game more than, than Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah, me, me uh, and Wisdom have, have talked about the game in previous episodes, and 
you know, my my thing, especially around when it was supposed to come out, and they're like, oh, it's going to be the delay. And you have these fans who are, like, sending death threats and doxing the developers because they said, oh, this is going to be delayed. It, it just got into a real mess at that time, and, and it, I think that's the only tragic thing. And I, I'm, I'm grateful, and I, I think it's stellar that, you know, even with all that bad publicity and and the bad you know the crap that they went through initially is just it, it's nice to see that they took the effort to repair the game yes it took longer than than the fans wanted but they've gotten it into a, a better place and then you have because because i think one of the other problems when with the launch was as soon as you know you had these opinionated gamers coming in and saying, "Oh, this game is crap, don't play it," there was probably fifty percent of an audience that was like, "Oh, I'm going to listen to them and and not even buy it right yeah which which put a stigma on that and then they you know those what? people came in six six months later, a year later, and started playing the game and were like, "What was all the fuss about? This is an awesome game, yeah, I mean. They they kind of shot themselves in the foot by promising a bunch of features that uh, eventually got pulled. Uh, they should have they should have just kept their mouth shut about that stuff. Here's the here's um, the part. I, I should lure you off of the PS5 and to get a computer version of it. Um, by the time the mods the modding people are done in another year or two, all of those features will be back in the game, and some extra. Basically, oh yeah! If I could afford a computer, I, I what I'd be doing. Was we need really, to set up a GoFundMe for you, uh, Wisdom? <laughs> GoFundMe buying a better computer just so I can play Cyberpunk. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow I don't think that would get all that much fun. But uh, it uh. I, I've seen what the modders are doing with the game, and it just it looks fantastic. Like the same quality of mods that I saw for like Fallout or uh, GTA or any of those games. Just modders are fantastic. And, and I love the games. I love the visuals of the game. They're all like we always imagined it. And I love the flexibility of the game. That game is programmed and written to work like a role player would want, basically. Yeah. Your character can get up in the morning, have breakfast, go out the door, shoot somebody, run down the stairs, climb in his car, drive across town, and go do some go do some business. And this is all in one game. You know, it's uh it's the I mean I, I will load up the game just to walk around Night City because that's that's been the dream since I first played the game. Like eventually, video games will get to the point where I can just do this, and yeah. they have. And I and it's it's such an amazing experience to walk by and like, oh, there's some maelstrom over there. Uh, I mean, I'm deep in the heart of Voodoo Boy territory. There's Arasaka Tower. There's it's it, the amount of lore that went into the game is amazing. My only, I mean, it's, it's <clears> even on kind of end of project red is, is their ability to do that kind of immersive background? Because I knew people that would, 
boot up Witcher 3, get on their horse, and just ride in a random direction. Yeah. The countryside was so damn gorgeous. <laughs> you know? So it's the same I mean, way. Okay. Yeah, visually, the game is, is, is damn near perfect. My only real complaints about the game are mechanics. Like... I wish they'd I wish they'd stayed a little bit closer to the feel of the twenty twenty tabletop game as opposed to like hit points and and levels and and level based gear and, and crap. I, I will never understand that decision. Well, um, but yeah, visually the game is near perfect. I think there's things that you can get away with in a tabletop game versus a computer game. And there's always gonna be really dramatically different uh, mechanics um, just because of how computer games are, right? So with a tabletop game, you can play, you know, fast and loose. It's all about the dice rolls, or you can get into the role-playing, which expands a game. Like um, my current Cyberpunk 2020 game, I think we're almost to year and a half, Um I think there's only been one combat situation or two combat situations since I started the campaign. And and that's one of the great things about cyberpunk is you don't want combat, right? To yeah. solve your problems. You want to think and, and make the, the proper skill roles to, to influence uh, the game. So uh, avoid it unless it's absolutely necessary or, you know, you can absolutely win. Yeah. So, Derek, what are your thoughts on? Uh, you said you uh, watched a little bit of the anime, the Edge Runners. What, what are your thoughts on that? I need to finish up the rest of it. Um, I know it's got a sad ending, but Shrug, that's you know, like they used to say, that's XCOM, baby. Well, that's that's Cyberpunk, baby. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I again, much like the game, much like the computer game, it's like just fantastic visuals, and like we were talking pre-start of the cast um you know there's only two studios and there's only two approaches uh, you either go for the color the flash and the over the top in which case trigger is your perfect choice nobody does it better or you go for the hard science uh fiction and then it's it's uh production ig because of the ghost in the shell work they did um you know, I would have loved it either way. I think it's a, you know, I think it's a good, I think it's a hell of a thing. Um, I'd like to see a second season, you know, have them just pick some more characters and follow them. I mean, hell, what I they, ought to, gone with... they ought to do is since is they ought to go back, they ought to go back and, uh, and grab all the characters from the actual game plot and do you know do v and all that uh, do v story animated see that would be a, a fine second season yeah i'd like personally i would like each season to be done by a different team uh like i'd like to see studio sunrise give it a shot um because while i love production ig i love sunrise every bit as much like Ghost in the Shell and Cowboy Bebop. You don't really get much better than that. Um, I would have liked to have. I would have liked to have seen Studio New uh, 
get a shot when they were still around. Um, they were they were a good but yeah. band. They were they were plagued, they were plagued with internal trouble. Yeah, <laughs> lots of strife there. But they gave us Bubblegum Crisis, so. <laughs> But yeah, um, I, for future seasons, I'd like to see each season done by a different animation team so we can see what it would look like to be a little bit more grounded or a little bit more character-focused. Uh, I mean, Studio Trigger did great with what they had, but they were a little bit over the top for my taste. That's, that's just... Pardon me? Uh, no problem. I... I I prefer things a little bit more grounded. I know you haven't seen the end of it, but in the end, the the last couple of episodes, it really kind of goes over the edge with uh, with just physics ignoring, yeah, weirdness. But the story remains good. The story remains compelling. The characters are fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Actually, the funniest thing in ter- regarding the animation and the game interaction is I have heard people want, if they haven't done it already, people want to do a mod that beefs up the beefs up the stats and abilities of Adam Smasher because so many supposedly bought into the game after the show was over with the sole purpose of leveling up and (laughs) down and greasing him. So it's like he's, I've heard people say that he is actually an, a far easier kill now than he was when when the game was first released. Because there are oh so yeah, because you can level up game with just the there idea are so many... of revenge pumping themselves to go after him. Yeah, like there are guides to build yourself up to be like the perfect murder machine. Um, on the other hand, what I what I think is really weird. Is I'm seeing on on Reddit and whatnot all these people who want to empathize with Adam Smasher and like he was probably a good person before he became a Borg and I'm like no 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 he wasn't he was oh, uh, with, it, with it, our discussion with Ben yeah I mean he said that Adam was yeah not like a nice Ben guy. laid it all down the origins of of Adam um, and it's nice to be able to like interject and be like. No, that's not who Adam was. Well, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, here's the creator talking about it. So here's the answer to your question. Here's the thing. This guy, that was then. This is now. Cyberpunk is a game of the now. Yep. Yeah. There's, there's no redemption for Smasher. There's a meat. Well, there is a, a chrome... Chrome and oil puddle on the ground for Smasher. Or somewhere of a, somebody had drawn a little cartoon of, of Adam Smasher hiding underneath a desk while an entire room of angry players like ran around looking for him. <laughs> you killed him. Meanwhile, I'm all like, what? Some people wear Reeboks. Adam Smasher wears Rebecca's. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we have another question. Uh, so Italy got their very own source book, not available anywhere else except in Italy. The the Nathan Never book. Yeah, the Nathan Never. Uh-huh. Um, 
and we just heard about a, a Japanese fan uh, fanzine called uh, Cryotank, who we heard, learned from uh, James Hunt. Uh, is there anything else that might be floating out there that you know, like? I, so, Wisdom is a, a diehard collector of all things. Got to have it all. Pokemon. So, do you know of any other? Something, but I cannot remember. Okay. Um, now, yeah, the the Nathan Never book. That's because. Nathan Never's a a big time comic strip in Italy, like science fiction, supernatural adventure, and so yeah, it's been going like as long as Judd Dredd. It's got the same type following. Now the Chrono Tank book that might actually be connected to the original uh, Cyberpunk twenty twenty fan club in Japan that was run by. Um, run by a guy whose whose first name I knew was Taka. Uh, his actual name was Tateno something or other. Um he was actually he was actually a big he was actually a big guy in like in like war gaming and role playing circles there in Japan. He was our he was our Japan guy for years. Um was the one that uh, coordinated with us on doing a, a Gundam book for Mekton, said book only published in Japan. Um, oh, of course. See, there you go. Artel Sorin put out a Mekton book. We just don't get it. And a few other things, but uh, but yeah, I think he might have been actually involved in that in the cryotank scene. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think maybe the Germans did something independently as well, but I cannot remember. Well, I know the Germans put out the like a reprint of 2020 with with like a hardback and all new art. I actually won a copy of it at a contest, and it's it blew me away. I was like, well, I can't, why, why aren't we releasing this? Um, and I know they repackaged some of the source books and I think they like actually got some of the ice source books and packaged them as cyberpunk 2020 stuff. They may have, um, Mike and I had talked about at one time seeing if we could re re license some German and Italian stuff and, and re-release it here. But, uh, we just never had the, uh, had the time or the funds to do it. Okay. Uh, I know when uh, I know when James Hunt told us about the cryotank things, it it, it blew our minds because I mean we've been diehard 2020 fans since the beginning, and it was the first time we'd ever heard of it. We knew there was a Japanese version of Cyberpunk 2020 with you know Japanese anime and manga styled art that we'd been we've been trying to get our hands on forever, but yeah, this hit us out of left field. Man. Yeah, so, um, so go ahead, Wisdom. Oh, I was just going to ask, uh, as the editor, what influence did you have on, on the material itself? Like, uh, how, how did you, how, what was the creative process on, on your end? 
Well, like I said before, it's like Mike's the Mike was the big idea guy. I'm the systems guy. So he would do things like write big swaths about about the background, about specific NPCs, about the roles themselves. Um, I would write or edit and make suggestions about the the harder rules regarding you know the tech how things were done uh supporting stuff um the kind of stuff you need to actually buttress up the background okay um are, are you still gaming Oh, like I said, I do I do war gaming and I do a lot of various Euro board gaming. Um, I don't do any I don't do any cyberpunk anymore. Um, haven't done any Mechton either, though. I'm thinking of getting back into that because uh, um, Benjamin Wright is running some Mechton. Oh, really? Yeah. <clears throat> so. Are you live in in near Ben and uh, are actually able to game or nice? I live in Northern California. Um, you know, a lot of the cyberpunk guys still live in Central California, though. You know, some have moved. Mike being up in Washington, Chris Williams out on the East Coast. Um, you know, spikes in Florida. No idea where Hawkabout and, and Rotor are. I think Hawkabout. Uh, I think Hawkabout in... in Oregon. Yeah. Mm. Or Washington. I know. I know he was up in the Pacific Northwest. Jeff Hexter's back. East. I follow him on Facebook. Yeah, we're all kind of scattered to the winds these days. But it sounds like all of you are still kind of in contact and Ben being the yeah. uh, the conduit through the yeah. various communications. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Um, what else are you up to these days? Anything else that uh, the fans would like to know about or you'd like to share? Not uh... Not too much. I mean, I'm getting back into I'm getting back into anime fandom after a uh, couple of years hiatus. Um, like I said, I play uh, I play uh, quite a bit of war games when I can uh, still when I can nail down an opponent. Um, <laughs> weekends, I usually I usually every other weekend I can be found playing. Uh, some sort of complicated Euro board game of some sort. Right. Yeah. I was introduced to those by one of my friends a couple of years back once I had quit uh, Artel and uh, that just became a thing. I, I find it very relaxing. Actually. Well, I heard diplomacy is one of those games you don't want to play with friends because you might lose them as such. <laughs> True. I, I I only ever played diplomacy once, and uh, I, I can attest to that too. Um, I got into some flaming rows during that game. 
can imagine. <clears throat> so we got a go ahead. I got a friend who comes into town for like a week, once a year, and every time it happens, we all rent a uh a B and B and that's actually going on right now. So last night I spent all I spent the evening we we all get together and play board games. Last night I spent the evening playing uh Marvel Zombicide and then uh some thrones. Some dice thrones. We play a lot of we play a lot of pandemic and we play a, a an interesting sandbox stand up game called uh Western Heroes. That's very cool. Mm. I, there are more games now than I can keep track of. Kickstarter allows every Tom, Dick and Harry to, to put out a game, so there's there's yeah. a ton of games out there that I hear are good, but I, I could never catch up to because there's just so many now. Yeah. There's actually a, a con I, I you, go up to in uh, Massachusetts, and basically they have this whole ballroom wall of just shelves of various games that you can check out and play. And it's just amazing at, at the variety that there is. I, uh... I tend to prefer faster games, and I'll tell you what my favorite uh, card game of all time is. It's called uh, um, Kung Fu Fighting, and it's not in print anymore uh, in its original form. I think you can still like do a print-on-demand from drive-thru, um, but it is by far my favorite like group activity party game type thing I've ever, I've ever played. Mm. If you can get your hands on Kung Fu fighting, you should do it. Wow. Were either of you big uh, big CCG collector players? I was a... Uh, yes. <laughs> I played Magic um, back in the 90s when it first came out. Um, I think I quit uh, when 5th edition came out, so it was, it was old school. I had... A bunch of uh, Netrunner cards, except my my basement got flooded and I lost all those. Uh, I played uh, uh, what was it, Vampire the Masquerade or Jihad. That was an interesting game. We we had a group that we would play like every other Friday, and it was like eight of us all at the table just. Like that, they used to swear by that game. Yeah. Yeah. I played Magic when it came out till about third edition, and then I sold all my Magic cards and bought uh, bought my way into uh, Legend of the Five Rings, yeah. which I played religiously for about three or four years. Um, I also played the original uh, Call of Cthulhu collectible card game, the one called Mythos, Mythos yep. because, I, because I was a huge Lovecraft fan, and I knew... I knew the guys at Chaosium. We were regular visitors back and forth because we were in Berkeley, they were in Oakland. So, you know, we would drop in on each other's offices all the time. Um, Good. Um, also played uh, um, the Over the Edge card game by Atlas Games because I liked the weirdness of it. It's it's got a very uh, uh, X Files 
Kafka uh, Lost Weekend kind of feel to it. Um, also, a, uh, a World War II collectible card game called... Uh, I think I played Battlefield, that. Battlefield to Berlin. That sounds familiar. Yeah, it was done by a, it was done by a small company. Um, it used actual uh, World War II stock art, um, but it had a it had a simple but very playable mechanical system. Um, so it managed to appeal to both my my DCG uh, bug and my wargaming bug. So I played the hell out of that game. Um, I collected, I collected Netrunner cards. I did not play that much. Chris Williams was our big Netrunner player. He used to play that game all the time. Um, yeah, it was Netrunner. Fun. Netrunner was the only CCG I ever got into, and I only got into it then because uh, Brainware Blowout gave us rules to use that as an alternative Netrunning system. And uh, that really appealed to me. Well, that came about because that came about because uh, because Chris Williams, who, like I said, was our big netrunner aficionado, um, at the time the netrunner card game was not selling that great, and he just came up with it mostly because he loved netrunner and because he thought it would make the the DCG sell better. Yeah, um, we've got about uh, half an hour left. Um, do you have any questions for us? Um, well, what what do you think of the post-2020 uh, cyberpunk games? Oh, for me? Um, yeah. I was just... So, so... Cyberpunk Red, uh, we, we actually did a review of it. Um, some of the stuff I did like, uh, especially how they took the roles and broke them down, um, especially with the, the special abilities and how they enhanced those compared to previous editions. Like, that's the one thing I loved about Wildside is how it took the street deal skill and turned it into this fabulous, yeah, this fabulous mechanic that the GM could use. Um, and cyberpunk red kind of took that as well. Um, I don't like a little bit of the, the simplification of the combat. Um, I think they went a little overboard, but overall I think it's flexible for people who are quickly need to get into the game. I would have liked to have seen them ha have advanced rules, right? In which they tied in a lot more of the cyberpunk 2020 stuff. Um, as yeah. for the, for the, uh, computer game, the 2077 computer game. I loved it. it even, you know, I, I mean, I bought it the first day. I actually, when, when they, so w back in 2013, when they did that um, little advertisement video of uh, of the girl with the mantis blades um, and, and C-SWAT, I was just like, okay, 
I'm saving my money, and the day that game comes out, I'm buying the best yeah. machine yeah. to play that thing on. So, now, on the first day, did you actually get to play it the first day? Because, like we, like you said, we were all kind of shocked by the bugginess of the damn thing. Oh, we got it in our. I mean, there was some bugginess, but there was, it wasn't as bad as as people have said. I mean, granted, you know, I had the top of the line machine <laughs> at that at that day, right? I because um, I took like I got it on. Go ahead. I, I spent like four grand on, on a new new system because I was waiting seven years because yeah. I usually buy a computer every three, four to five years. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna. Keep on waiting and keep on saving those, you know, nickels and dimes for myself. And I was able to get, you know, the best machine. So I didn't see that. Now, granted, anybody with a, a lower end machine, I'm sure the graphics were just a churn. Um, but I, I've been see. playing computer games for so long that, you know, I also know, like, uh, you know, back in the 90s, it was like, okay, this, this new game's coming out. You need the latest and greatest video card so it was like okay you i got into that mentality of constantly upgrading my machine uh, on a scheduled basis because oh this is a game i want to play and i want to play it on you know the best and not have to worry about uh backwards compatibility so i got it on playstation 4 and while there were some bugs uh there was nothing that was game breaking or or unplayable for me like the game played fine yeah went all the way through the story did all the side missions did everything you could do and had the time of my life yes there were bugs yes there were uh some glitches every now and then but nothing game breaking or nothing that in, that ruined my enjoyment of the game yeah and and, and I, mean, I knew that you know when it first came out yeah there's gonna be bugs Sure, I'm driving a motorcycle, and all of a sudden I'm teed out on on top of the motorcycle without any pants on. Okay, I get it. <laughs> that happens. Not a bugger is it a feature? Yeah. <laughs> Anti hype, I think, is what the is the thing was that the, you know there was as much hype against the game once it came out. You know, it wasn't that like you said, it wasn't that bad for a lot of people. Right. And. Uh, yeah, and I think the the people who suffered most were were the people with an older gen system. Um, and, there's and, nothing, you know. I hate to say this, but as a as a game company staffer, I can tell you there is nobody more ungrateful than cranky games. <laughs> yeah, like like I said, Dude, every I, I time love... they were delayed, people, you know, developers <clears throat> were getting doxxed and and death threats. I mean, I I love fans. I love fandom, but God, do I have a problem with fanboys? Just, <laughs> it, it, it's a game. It's entertainment. You're not supposed to get this worked up about it. Um, there is this just this weird air of entitlement that goes along with any kind of fandom these days. Like, look at like Zack Snyder Justice League fans. Jesus, those are scary people. Uh, regardless of whether you like the the stuff or hate it, like the the clash between those two groups is terrifying at times. Um, yeah. 
as as for Cyberpunk Red, I think it's I think it's beautiful. I love the art in it. Uh, there's some great ideas and some great stuff in there. But I've been running 2020 so long that that's that's my world. That's like in my game, the the events that led up to Red never happened. So I'm still just playing along in my world. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would, if I was going to run again, I would run 2020 just because. To me, anything after that has sort of the the comic book company sliding time scale. You know, the same yeah. way the same way that Marvel Comics has to keep pushing certain events further and further into the future. Um, otherwise, people would. And I got a reset every now and then. Yeah, so it's kind of the same way with uh, the. Side- because cyberpunk is already kind of a Z rust future. Um, you know, yeah. Trying it's, to... it's alternate timeline that we've already passed, but yeah, it, that's it, part of what it, makes it so cool. Or, you know, to me, the, I don't know why they called the game 2077. They just could have called it 2020 because there, there appears to be, to, at least to me, there appears to be nothing going on in that game that's beyond what we could have done in the game, in right. the role-playing game. And therefore, you know, trying to push it further into the future is just like, why? Well, I think the, the fourth the corporate part war... is like all the all the lore characters still being alive in 2077, not just like one or two. But like all of them, they're all there. Nobody, nobody has died in the meantime. Um, that's that's the weirdest part. They all look fucking young. I know that uh, cosmetic surgery is a big thing, and other people can just go full Borg with a like a Genesis type body and look like whatever they want. You but know, it's still weird. Well, Boa Boa is dead. Biotech. Yeah, but his son is basically the same. It's. It's basically okay. My character died. Let me just change this name. He's his son. Yeah, biotech. Uh, is did you actually have any hand in any of the creations of any of the the lore, like biotech, Nika, or any of the corporations? Um, no, no. Again, I added details. But I was not a uh, I was not a creator of any of them specifically. Got it. You know, would uh, I would sometimes help Mike out by saying, "Well, this you know this should fall under that company's purview," and and uh, if this company does X, then you know that sort of thing. I was uh, I was a details man. Right. Um. Because when we when we had a uh, Will Moss and basically Will Moss is the guy who created or or fleshed out quite a few of the uh, the corporations was it was he kind of given a, a lot more freedom to do what he wanted or was there a little restriction coming from you and Mike? No, in, the, in those in those early days, um, we kind of let people run. We let people run free and then tried to corral the uh, the wild animals afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, we, we pretty 
much let people work, you know, work as they wanted and then just sort of adjusted after. Um, because the idea was that it was a, you know, 2013 was a blank slate. So it was like anything we added to that was fresh and new and would work simply indented the idea that there was nothing there to compete with. It's like you invent a new company, it works automatically because there is no company to fill that slot until you invented it. Um, you know, the lore, the lore became tighter, became more fussy um, near the end of the run uh because everything had a slot by then but then mike was going to blow it all up uh <laughs> for corporate war so it was it was sort of like it went on a curve it was like wide open then it got kind of fussy and then it became wide open again because well mike was going to blow it all up so it was okay anything could be done because it's all going to get mm. it's all <laughs> set on fire <clears throat> interesting okay while I've got you on the hook, and purely for selfish vanity reasons, um, you being the main rules guy at Artal Sorian, have have you seen what uh, what we did with Interlock Unlimited? No, I have not. I have only heard I have only heard rumors. Um, okay, now go and read that because uh, it sound the rumors sound pretty cool. Yeah, I would absolutely love to get your feedback on it. And um, yeah, basically it was just a like a rewrite and kind of streamlining of the interlock system, and you know, adding some stuff here and there. Uh, and I would love to get your opinion on it. Okay. Um, also, something that came up in the Twitch chat. Want to bring you... this up? Have you uh, real quick? What's that? Um, what you did is again probably what we would have headed towards if not for the interregnum. Because oh. at this point, uh, Mike was in with the with the hero guys, and so he was doing that combined Artel hero fusion um and he wanted he wanted to kind of back propagate that to several of the game systems which is why i think it it shows up doesn't it show up in red i can't remember um uh like some weird cross between fusion and interlock uh comes yeah. through in red um yeah. you know basically um yeah. If he hadn't gotten in with the hero guys, and if we hadn't had the interregnum, there wouldn't have been a fusion, and we probably would have gone towards eventually because everything was trying to get or reorganized and streamlined. Um, we would have ended up trying to do something like what you guys have done. Again, a tip of my hat to you sure. guys that uh, that you are pulling these things off. Oh, that's mostly wisdom, man. <laughs> he's he's the he's the content creator. I just uh, create tools uh, for people for cyberpunk. Thank you so much. Um, 
but yeah, now I will have to go back and actually uh, and actually read the thing to Excellent. see exactly what you guys done. So yeah, I, I would. That would make my millennium, even though it just started. <laughs> um, one thing that came up in the Twitch chat was uh, they mentioned something about a fanzine called Scream Sheets that came out back in the nineties. Do you know where of it? Green Sheets. Unlike Chris Hockabit's mag, Scream Sheets was not something I was involved in. Um, that was that was more of I believe something Mike was was trying to propagate. Um, And I'm not sure if it was supposed to be a, a 2020 thing or a a pre-red thing or possibly a cyber generation thing. Which is another which is another thing. Uh, other than doing basic editing on text and whatnot, I had very little to do with cyber generation. That's all off the top of Mike's head. He's he's all he's hmm. all completely the uh, the uh, midwife for that. <laughs> the way you put that. Okay. Well, um, I got no more questions for you, Derek. Um, I do appreciate all My... the time. But wisdom, if you have any last, uh, I'd just like to know about uh, you guys put out Edge of the Sword Volume One. <laughs> um, how did that come about? Like, what made you guys decide to do this giant book o guns? Okay, that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother thing. But I could easily burn up our last ten to fifteen minutes just talking about that. Um, have you ever heard of a role-playing supplement called the Armory? Yes, I have a copy. You have a copy. Okay, the Armory oh, yeah. is by a guy named Kevin Dockery. Kevin is a yeah. former SEAL, and he later became a historian for the SEAL Association, and also a, a involved in the seal museum and a few other things um he's a big he's a big guy in the special ops community um he's also a writer he's written uh he's written a couple of different seal histories and some other spec ops stuff um for reasons i have never quite clearly understood he and Mike became friends. They met at one of the Gen Cons and became friends. And he came to us and said, I have this, I have this role-playing game. I have this role-playing system. I guess everybody in those days was like a closet role-playing creator. You know, they all had a game that they kind of wanted to, to, to get published. But he had a game. And uh, he also wanted to do 
a better version of the uh, of the Armory. The Armory had been published by some company that's so obscure. I think I think the Armory was the only book they ever did. Um, but he wanted to do a better version of the Armory, and he wanted to do this role playing game that was going to be a uh, uh, a counter terror. Basically, you'd play something like uh, the equivalent of Rainbow Six and go around a smack on terrorists and and Soviet special ops squads and stuff like that. It was the 80s and 90s. I mean, shrug. While, while today that stuff is a dime a dozen in the 90s, that actually would have been fairly unique. It might have been. Um, the, the thing was is... Uh, his system was really complicated. Um, we were pretty sure after we'd gone through it that it wasn't going to fly. Um, but his ideas for doing a new armory were good because, I mean, he was a great historian and cataloger of all that kind of stuff. So Mike decided, well, we'll take the one book but not the other. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll take the... Uh, uh, We'll take the, the the weapons catalog and maybe do something with the the role playing game down the road. Hence, Edge of the Sword Volume One. Um, turned out um, uh, to be our most popular, best selling non cyberpunk book. In the, I in believe the, that pre. Um, uh, period <coughs> our town uh we sold more i mean it um good we sold more of those than anybody else and the part that started highly amusing me was the fact that thanks to kevin we packed so much damn real world info into that that we were starting to get feedback from the military community saying we bought this not for our role-playing game, but to keep around as a quick reference. Really? That's awesome. I, thought that I was, mean... I thought that was bullshit. A... I heard from my younger brother, who belonged to the, uh, the 25th Infantry Division at the time in Hawaii, and he said, Oh, your book. I bought like three copies of that. One for me, one for our company armor, and one for somebody else. I say, you don't even play role-playing games. He goes, I don't use it for role-playing games. <laughs> Damn, that's cool. I mean, it sits proudly on my shelf along with, like, all the other gun books, but it's it's the place of honor. Because, um, like, today, even, you know, 20 years out of date, it's still a damn good reference. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's the best of the bunch. I mean, you had, like... Guns, Guns, Guns from 3G. You had the Palladium Compendium of Modern Firearms. You had all the all the uh, Twilight 2000 books. Um, but this is, obviously, when you're looking through it, it is the most well-researched and thought out of, of that whole genre of, of splat books. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that was all on Kevin. That was all on Kevin. We just... We just edited and laid it out, pretty much. He brought us all the, he very... all the info. He brought us all the pictures. Um, so, uh, 
that was uh yeah we we were we were merely the uh we were merely the conduit <clears throat> for his uh his genius at the time to to come out nice i have i have one last quick question mm -hmm. um and i asked this of i asked this of ross ross told me to ask benjamin benjamin told me to ask you oh brother who is eric oppen He's listed as the co-author for Neo Tribes with Ross Wynn. And I I who is he? Is that a is that a pen is that a ghostwriter name for somebody else or because I can't find I've never been able to find any information anywhere. I can't remember um who that is a ghostwriter for. Um uh, Neo Tribes was very much uh was very much ross's baby um yeah it was very much ross's baby i basically came in at the end of it to base to do just basic editorial polishing and to make sure it didn't it didn't clash with the uh with the u.s set um and god yeah, Eric is a ghost. That's a ghost name for somebody. And I, like I said, I'll be damned if I can remember who it is. Um, well, that's what I've. That's what I've come to guess. I just, yeah, I didn't know if it was real or, or not. So now we have confirmation that at least it's a, at least it's a ghost name, and we can try. Eventually, I'll ask. Uh, I think I'll ask Ed. Ed Bolm. If uh, it might even be Ed because Ed did stuff for us on and off as you know uh, he wasn't a regular but he would come in and do things he did more stuff for us when it, uh um when castle falk came along i mean he pretty much did the u.s book for uh for castle falk minus the parts that i did okay because here's the here's the here's again the dirty secret uh, the cyberpunk editor actually wrote for Castle Falk quite a bit. In fact, more, I think I actually may have ended up writing more <laughs> Castle Falk than I did for, uh, for 2020. Um, I mean, Castle Falk was, was so far ahead of it. It was the first time I'd ever seen steampunk. Yep. Well, it was I, so far ahead of its time. Here, you know, here's the thing. This is the clash between systems guy and big idea guy. Like when Mike originally came up with this idea and proposed it, <coughs> I told him he was nuts and it would be. <laughs> we had some arguments. Um, he did not, you know, until I actually saw the manuscript of the basic game, um, I was not sold on it. Um, after after doing some test plays and reading through the actual manuscript of the basic game, I was begrudgingly sold on it. Um, after I helped Ed write the U.S. book, then I was pretty much sold on it. But yeah, I didn't That's... think it, it, you know, as steampunk was a thing, but steampunk was an even more obscure genre than cyberpunk was. So I thought, this is never going to fly. You know, six people are going to buy this and they'll 
they'll they'll make great reviews about it, but I can't, you know, we can't live on six people buying the game. Yeah. Um, but but Mike had the big idea. He realized that based on the success of the vampire uh, of White Wolf's vampire games live action role playing events that there was a there was a market and a hunger for that kind of simple role play that could be used as part of a live action event. I mean, I have to hand yeah. him he had that idea from the beginning. It's just I didn't I didn't think it would fly. You know, I did it wasn't until well, later no, I, I didn't realize early nineties wow, if you I there was an appetite for that concept, people are gonna look at you like you're crazy. Oh yeah. There you go. Cool. That's awesome. Well, we're about time, so um, I think we can wrap it up here. Derek, it was a it pleasure was talking pleasure. to you. Yes, we really appreciate you taking out the time um, and and talking about no like the old days. Gaps for you and uh, and uh, you know further expanded your cyberpunk history. I mean, I'm glad somebody's in cyberpunk history because the other fandom that I'm a part of, anime, no one's ever going to do a, a history of American anime fandom because it's too damn chaotic. And too many of the people... It really is. And too many of the early people that quit it quit it in a huff and probably don't want to talk to anybody anymore. <laughs> um so I'm glad that somebody's doing at least a cyberpunk history. Yeah. And, and and we're glad that, you know, all of you guys are still, after 30 years, um, are still in contact with each other and and still touch base, which is yeah. fabulous. I and mean, that's willing a... to talk to us and reach back, that's... And that's a testament I mean, to you guys. To... It... Yeah, to say we're fans is a ridiculous understatement. Um, to, to, to be working on that kind of stuff. It was, everything was fresh and new. You know, it was, you know, every, every six months there was a new idea to work on. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So um, if you want to hang out and chat with us a little further afterwards, that's fine. We're just going to do our quick, uh, uh, Ending, closing uh, outro uh, statement. Yeah, or outro bit. So, um, unfortunately, I do have to go. I okay. Have to no problem. We again, we appreciate well, all of your time, man. Yeah. Once yeah. again, thank you so very much. I, you're always welcome on the show, and uh, I, I hope to hear from you either on the show or just privately. Uh, thank you, thank you so much, Mr. Quintanar. Yes, thank you. Thank you. All right. So, um, everyone, I am CyberSmiley. Uh, you can check me out on my site, cybersmiley.net. Uh, it has a bunch of utilities for your Cyberpunk 2020 as well as Cyberpunk Red. Um, I have my own Discord server that you can check out. Uh, a link is on my site. I am also hang out at pretty much almost all the, the Cyberpunk uh, servers, so... If you do at CyberSmiley, I'm I will hear the call and probably chime in. Um, 
Also, I'm on uh, Reddit and, and scan the various threads there that are associated with Cyberpunk. I am not on Facebook or Twitter. I'm just those two two platforms are not for me. But wisdom. Oh, I am Derek Bernier, otherwise known as Wisdom Triple Zero. Uh, I run datafortress2020.com, the largest and most comprehensive resource for Cyberpunk 2020 online. Uh, you can find me on, you can get a hold of me through the website. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Reddit. Uh, I'm on Discord. Um, not on Twitter. Uh, no, thank you. That dumpster fire is not for me. Uh, but we would love to hear from you with any comments uh compliments complaints suggestions uh criticisms whatever we'd like to hear from you for our future shows most definitely uh we uh we'd like to thank rob mulligan and cyber nation uncensored for hosting us um you can catch us every yeah we're here every uh first and third wednesday of the month and you can catch us on the cyber nation uncensored youtube channel under the uh heading tales from the forlorn dopes uh, and also again, i'd like to thank our i don't know what platform it is but there um we are also have podcasts of these shows as well so if you can't listen to yeah. us uh, tonight or, or can't listen to us well uh or if you have a long commute by all means download one of our shows and uh listen to it in the car yeah uh, once again, we'd like to thank Derek Quintanar for joining us, uh, and we will we'll see you in uh, two weeks. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.